Howdy, friends. Welcome back to Experience Design with Tony Dosat. I happen to be Tony Dosat. Whether this is your first time tuning in or you've come back for more, I want to thank you for joining me. And if you find value in what you're hearing, please do take a moment to subscribe and leave a review. It's always greatly appreciated. And with that, what do you say we jump into the interview? So here we are with Ben Judy. Hello. First of all, thank you so much again for coming out. You are the head of user experience design at 7-Eleven. Yes. And of the Slurpee. That's right. (laughs) I got to tell you, I know that you're not like uh, the founder. I'm obsessed with 7-Eleven. It's almost um, reached a level where it's like, if I don't go every day, like I don't go on the weekends because it's not on my way to work. I go every freaking day. It's true. (laughs) We love you. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not just saying that because you're sitting here. I mean, it's true. Yeah, it, it's really wonderful working for a brand that is so well-known, so beloved. It's it's a you know over 90-year-old company that actually started here in the Dallas area. A lot of people don't know that. But the origins of 7-Eleven are the Southland Ice Company, which started in the Oak Cliff neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, now it's this international behemoth that has, has sort of taken over the world. And it's a, it's a fun brand, uh, certainly, to design for. Um, and it's really exciting to kind of take it into the future. It really does have a brand voice that is identifiable, and I want to jump into that later. But my question is, before that, how did you get to where you are and who you are? Oh, you know, it's a long and winding road, as it often is, right? So I guess depending on how far back you want to go, um, you know, my first real passion, I think, professionally – um, or what I thought would be my first passion professionally when I was in high school uh, was journalism. Um, mm. I, I started, you know, joined the journalism class and started contributing to the student newspaper and all that good stuff. And I thought, man, I like words. I like communicating. I like ideas. This seems like a good fit. Did that and then discovered really what I liked was was sort of producing media, right? So in college, kind of majored in broadcasting. That evolved into um a double major where I picked up this other thing called multimedia technologies, right? <laughs> and one thing led to another and, and discovered that, man, I could, I could build these things called websites on this new thing called the web, right? And no one else knew how to do it. And I was terrible at it, but that's, if you're the only guy that knows how to do it, you can get a job, right? So even as a college student, I ended up with a full-time job while also being a full-time student, um, which you can pull off when you're in your early 20s, right? Um, and, and my job was doing web design for a small company. And so that sort of then led into a career where around 2004, 2005, uh, I ended up at Travelocity out at Sabre out in South Lake. Yeah, uh, I was at Sabre for a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, in the, in the DFW area, that's... Uh, the joke is that everyone gets their ticket punched uh, at Sabre, <laughs> right? Because it is it is a company with such a great commitment to UX and design, and and they have large teams. Um, but that that experience at Travelocity um, was kind of the first experience I had in certainly in a corporate environment in a large design team, mm-hmm. um, and they had sort of had all the UX functions going. They called it the customer experience team at the time, but it really was a UX practice, and that's where uh, I made that leap. And it's really kind of been a career in UX ever since. You know what's so fascinating to me? I've had a few guests on that that have spoken to their background. And it's like, I, I started on this thing called the web. And it's like, that is, it's mind-blowing because some listeners are probably going, 
the web was a new thing. Yeah. UX didn't exist. Yeah. And yeah. now it's, it's not, so not as we know it today, right? Yeah. It's, you could certainly draw the historical connections backwards to, you know, uh, previous professional fields and areas of interest, things like, you know, creative problem solving all the way back into mm. the 1950s, or you could go further back if you want. But yeah, I think this, this thing that we call UX or even experience design today, if it has a digital bent, certainly, uh, the web was kind of the catalyst for, for a lot of that. Yeah. Um, um, although, you know, I also have an affinity for really just software design and kind of mm. uh, that that history extends further back, right, into the, the 90s and 80s and even the 70s. And, and you had people looking at kind of um, usability. Uh, and that, in, in my mind, I, because of the way I, I came into UX through the, the people that I worked with at Travelocity at that time, um, I sort of see usability – sciences as um, and usability analysis as sort of where modern UX emerged out of. But mm-hmm. these are always interesting conversations to me because p- different people have different perspectives. Right? Yeah. Well, that, that's not where UX came from. It emerged out of, you know, oh, no, so-and-so. Yeah, right. But, uh, but I, I always tend to look at usability first mm-hmm. and, and go, you know, that's kind of the kernel, the root of what UX is about. You know, can I use this thing to do what I want it to do? Yeah. Um, and then layered on top of that are all the other uh, levels of delight and, and all these other things we talk about. So yeah. were you, when you were at Travelocity and elsewhere, were you doing UI design in, I guess at the time people were using Photoshop still? Oh yeah. And it feels like ancient history now to me at least, but, um, but yeah, I came in, in a role uh, where I was doing visual design in Photoshop, yeah. um, kind of creating the comps and handing them off to the people that would code the UI, right? Uh, and then a, a position opened up in the team that was a little bit of a better position for me that was UI technology role. So they called me a UI technologist, and I sort of became the CSS uh, standardista, uh, you know, an HTML standards guru for a little while there. Um, and then realized my my technical aptitude uh, probably took me a little longer and a little more effort to build. And I was a little more interested in, again, kind of the the usability and UX design side mm-hmm. of things um, and the human focus of it yeah. um, rather than either the, the technical side of, you know, building user interfaces or the creative side of, of sort of exploring aesthetics, which is also not necessarily my strong suit. I can do it, but it, it takes a lot more effort. Uh-huh. And um, what, what feels naturally is sort of that, that other space for me of, you know, is it usable on up to, is it delightful? Is it meaningful? Yeah. And, and how do we, how do we observe that and measure that with a given design, you know, with, yeah. with, with people who are using something. So what transitioned your career trajectory into leadership? Yeah. Uh, frustration, right? Oh, really? <laughs> right. Well, no, that's, that's a glass half empty way to put it. Right. Yeah. But, but certainly along the way, um, you know, in various roles as a contributor on different design teams or, or as the lone designer in, in different organizations as well. Um, you, you know, I kept running into all these scenarios where leaders didn't understand UX. They didn't know what they were doing with it. They didn't, a bigger picture, didn't know what they were doing with design in the organization, or at least it seemed that way to me, mm-hmm. you know, from, from my vantage point, um, wherever I was in the org. Um, and really started to get more interested in organizational strategy as it relates to design and UX. So how, how would an organization of any size leverage uh, the impact that, that a UX designer or a UX team can have, 
right? Um, so started reading about that. A big catalyst for me was around 2013, so not all that long ago. Um, I became connected with a new uh, conference and a new uh, community of practice called UX Strat. Um, mm-hmm. It was organized by a, a guy named Paul Bryan. And um, it immediately became, you know, my, my favorite UX conference and my favorite group of people to hang out with and, and talk shop with because they were talking about all those things that were interesting to me. Yeah. You know, how do you approach UX work strategically, not just at sort of a product design level, right? So there's certainly strategy, UX strategy in building user interfaces, designing interfaces and that sort of thing, but also at an organizational level, mm. right? What does it mean to to structure a, a design department in a business so that it achieves maximum you know, impact for the business and, and yeah. does great things for customers, right? Um, and that was all just fascinating to me and still is. And so, you know, eventually got to a point where I uh, had a management role managing a team of about a half a dozen, six or seven designers and started to kind of connect all those dots. And um, yeah, and then, then just started to pursue those types of roles in my career, uh, leadership roles, as opposed to um, just being a contributor to where now, frankly, for the, for the past couple of years, I really haven't designed anything. Uh, you know, yeah. I certainly, I certainly contribute. Um, we'll jump into ideation sessions and, and we'll do a lot of critique. Um, but now it's more for me about, you know, how can I extend my influence through, through a team? Yeah. Um, and, and that's not to say at some point, you know, my, my next role in my career, whenever that is in the future, I may go back to being a contributor. I, I think that's the great thing is once you, once you have that sort of like riding a bicycle, you might get a little rusty, but you can always go back to it. Right. <laughs> um, and I think that the urge to, to create and design will, will always be there mm. for me. But, um, for now it's, you know, how, again, how can I kind of extend my influence through a team of people who are frankly better at those different aspects of design than I am? Yeah. Um, and that's the, other, the thing that I'm really enjoying about it, uh, especially where I'm at at 7-Eleven, is just a, having put together a team of, of people uh, who are better visual designers, better interaction designers, mm. you know, better user researchers, certainly, than I ever was or probably ever will be. And and just being able to organize and orient their efforts and give them what they need to succeed. That's really where I get most of my joy professionally um, right now. Now, my next question, digging into this leadership angle, for those of us that want that in the future, what advice would you give someone who's thinking... I do want to lead a team or manage a team because it's not built for everyone. Right. But for those that want that to be their path, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I guess there's there's lots of advice and I'm I'm learning as I go, mm. <laughs> as, as you do, right? I'm, I'm learning new things every day. But, it, you know, things that are top of mind for me right now, just uh, on the journey that I'm on, would be one, be able and, and willing to, and, and be proactive in driving conversations around what design should look like at the organization that you're in, right? Um, and that's not a decision you get to make. That's a that's a thing you get to discover and align with the, the leaders of the organization mm-hmm. and hopefully influence them. But what I mean by that is, you know, there's there's different ways of, of how a, an organization might want to leverage designers. And I say designers, it could be UX researchers as well, mm-hmm. right? Do you want them to just be order takers? 
right? And hopefully not. And, but that's kind of where things start, right? Yeah. If you look at different maturity models, you'll see this sort of thing articulated, right? Like, okay, designers start out as order takers and, hey, make it this color and use mm. these fonts and draw me these pictures, right? And, and we all hate that, but that's kind of where things begin. Well, you know, do you want us rather to be something more like a creative agency, only, only we're in-house? Maybe you fill out a brief, you give us some details, point us in a direction, we'll come back with some concepts and you'll give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Is that what you want, right? Is that is that where you're at in terms of leaders, what you want from design? The next level might be something more like a consulting agreement or a consulting arrangement, right? Do you want us to proactively come to you with recommendations, but you still decide and take all of the, mm. the you know, accountability for the decisions of what you do with those design recommendations? What we strive for is partnership, right? And and you hear phrases like, you know, UX wants a seat at the table and, and all these different things. Um, just defining what that means, right, is a skill that the leader needs to have facing towards the organization. Yeah. Um, what does that partnership look like? Um, do you actually have the acumen and the ability to contribute to strategic conversations about the growth of the business? Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if you've come up in a, in a career in, in design, you probably don't. Right. Right. And, and I, I have not gone to business school. I don't have an MBA. This is stuff that I've had to pick up along the way uh, by taking an interest in it and connecting with people and learning from them. Right. Um, but that, that's one piece of advice I guess I would have. If you're looking to become a leader in the sense of, of leading, a, say, a design department or mm -hmm. a UX department in, in an org of any size, develop that um, ability and a point of view on what you think is right for the organization and engage with mm -hmm. leadership around that. Because otherwise, it's undefined. Yeah. Right? And if you're going to lead it, you have to define it. <laughs> yeah. So you don't want to you don't want to be leading a team where the place of that team in the org is undefined because you're just – casting about on the on the ocean and the waves can blow you know, take you anywhere and it sounds like when you started at 7-eleven the top dogs were like we're going to invest in this we believe in design yeah. we believe in its roi and impact yeah absolutely that a lot don't yeah. and potentially the first step is understanding business and understanding yeah. how to communicate that roi and speak their language yeah how do you communicate that roi you adopt their language, right? So you have to, first of all, you have to gain their trust to let you into those conversations, to see those PowerPoint decks, quite frankly, mm. right? To, to get really tactical. Where's the deck that shows, you know, our vision, our strategy, near term, what are our priorities and our goals for which parts of the business, right? To understand those metrics that they're looking at yeah. for what, what kind of growth they're looking at in the business. Um, and then repeat that back to them, making sure that, that I actually understand what that means, repeat it back so they can see that, oh, I can dialogue with you about this. You care about what I care about, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, for, just to be real real specific, like one of the goals that we have at 7-Eleven right now that's a, a top priority for our digital group is the growth of our loyalty program, Seven yes. Rewards, right? And so there are different ways we're measuring the growth of that loyalty program. Um, total number of registered members, active members, active scans, you know, using the 7-Eleven app where you, yeah. you scan uh, at, at the point of sale to identify yourself to the loyalty program when you make a purchase and earn and, and redeem points. Those are the sorts of metrics we're looking mm -hmm. at. Um, and if certainly my team is designing the experiences around those interactions, but if I'm unable to speak the same language to the business about how they're measuring those things and, and how many members we want to get to by the end of this year, they're not going to look at me as a strategic partner, right? They're, they're going to look at me more as an order taker. I think what's also interesting about the situation that 
the designers that you have are in is that they have the opportunity to go to these stores, right? Yeah. Do they do that and go oh, absolutely. just immerse themselves in that experience? So we have a store in our building. It's a corporate store, um, but um, that's the most beautiful thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, doing UX at 7-Eleven in our, in our store support center is whenever we want to see customers or observe store associates or do just some, some quick uh, kind of guerrilla field research, we just go downstairs. That's too cool. And that store is open to the public and it's right there. And by the way, within five miles of our headquarters, there's probably another five franchise-owned stores. Mm. They're all <laughs> over the Metroplex, right? I pass probably four 7-Elevens on my way from home to work each oh, morning. Yeah. And, I, and I stop at them, right, as often as I can. Um, and so, yeah, the, in terms of being able to just jump right into the, the user's context of use, to, mm-hmm. to use that UX terminology, um, it's unparalleled. I mean, we, we have complete access and, and we have lots of support too. I mean, the way we're, our digital team is structured now, we have uh, what we call uh, digital zone managers who for all the different uh, regions around the country uh, will enable and support us to engage with stores to conduct tests. You know, we can throw together prototypes and do quick kind of test mm-hmm. and learn experiments with the support of actual stores in the field. Uh, and they enable those things. So very different from other places I've worked in the past where it's just a fight. It's just a hard battle to get access to users or mm-hmm. customers. Um, here, we, we really have no, almost no limitations. And, um, and businesses are, it's open 24-7. So yeah. anytime you want to go into a store and, and just watch customers, um, whoever those customers are. Again, mm-hmm. if they're the, the shoppers, if they're the store associates, the franchisees, we, we can just go do that. How much... Does your team and 7-Eleven as a whole, I guess, look at what competition is doing? I guess it's very broad competition. For example, Amazon Go, is that something that is being looked at as we got to catch up? Or is it something internal that's growing where it's like, we're going to keep doing our thing and building that? Or do you look at competition and say, oh, we got to do what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We're we're doing competitive analysis all the time, mm. right? And we have our eye on Amazon and, and everybody else, right? Certainly, everybody in the convenience retail space and everybody adjacent to the convenience retail space. You know, fresh food is a huge uh, push right now. In fact, yeah. uh, you know, those are the two top strategic priorities right now for Seven Eleven. This is no secret: digital and fresh food. Mm-hmm. Those are the two things that we're really uh, banking on and betting on as a business. And um, so we look at pizza chains, we look at quick serve restaurants, and we're sort of getting into the QSR business a little bit too, uh, expanding sort of what it means to be 7-Eleven and, mm-hmm. and be convenience retail. Um, and so, yeah, looking at the competitive landscape um, from a UX perspective, that means, you know, looking at um, how those digital channels are used, certainly to, to uh, engage with customers and facilitate interactions. Uh, one of the exciting new things that we're doing right now is rolling out a new service called Seven Now, which is delivery. Yeah. Um, and so you can order things from your local Seven Eleven to be delivered to you, usually in less than thirty minutes. So, uh, and and what that means for us being a, a store with thousands of items in a very small footprint um, is you can get you know pizza and a pack of nine volt batteries and a box of Kleenex right. and a gallon of milk, right? <laughs> and have it and have it brought to you within thirty minutes. Um, and that's that's a very exciting new thing that we're doing but you know looking at what's happening in the delivery space 
which is mm. so hot right now, you know, um, with the service economy. Um, yeah, we, we can't just kind of put our blinders on and think we're, we're going to do something new and unique because it's new and unique to, to a 90-year-old company, to 7-Eleven. Um, oh, we we sure. have to look at what's going on and, and do as good or better because the expectations of customers have changed too. And this is this is conversation we're having constantly around our building as well. Um, is The expectation isn't that, oh, this is new from, from 7-Eleven, the brand I love, and so I'm going to try it. Um, there's already competition in almost any area we're going to go into, right? And anything we're going to do. And so we have to be as good or better on launch. <laughs> yeah. And that really changes the definition yeah. of MVP, right? This mm -hmm. idea of the minimum viable product or minimum minimum service that you would test with um, as soon as people experience something and it's it's not up to par with what it what it felt like to order from Grubhub from their favorite restaurant, yeah. uh, they're not going to come back. All of the items, the fresh foods, drinks, whatever it is, batteries, like you said, milk, the definition of those items being that convenient thing. And then also looking at how is that experience of purchasing or receiving those items convenient? So it's like every level of convenience right. you can think of, you want to sort of be on top Absolutely. of. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's fun to look at the history, the origins of 7-Eleven. As I said, it you know started here in the Dallas area and it was an ice house. It was the Southland Ice Company. Mm -hmm. And this was back in the 1920s before people had refrigerators in their homes. And so what you would do is get a block of ice and then you would put that in your ice box at home and, and keep your perishables cool, right? Uh, and the, the problem people had was, well, I had to stop here to get my ice. I had to stop here to get my eggs and stop here to get my whatever, my smokes, right? Yeah. And and so the the owners of this, uh, this ice house listened to their customers. It all started mm -hmm. with customer empathy, right? And said, well, yeah, I can provide those things too. So you just can just make one stop. And, and that's kind of where the convenience store concept began. Um, and so, yeah, it's not just about the products, although certainly that's table stakes, right? If the, mm -hmm. if the items, the, the food or the whatever I'm getting at 7-Eleven isn't as good as what I can get somewhere else, we've lost, right? The, the merchandise has to be on point. Um, but the whole experience, the whole shopping experience and, and really what differentiates us, right? What does convenience mean to you, right? Mm -hmm. Typically what that has looked like over the decades is speed, right? It means I'm in and out in just a few seconds and I get whatever I need. And I, and I think we're, we're approaching a point where um, it's more nuanced than that. It's more complicated than speed because yeah. especially with the proliferation of delivery services and the service economy, mm -hmm. I can get almost anything now delivered to me very quickly and I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to lift a finger. I just make a few taps on my phone. And so is speed that important of a factor? It is if I'm out and about. So it, so it becomes more of a, a use case driven, mm -hmm. you know, need state driven sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's a lot more complicated, I think, than it used to be, but that, that sure makes it a lot of fun as an experienced designer too. Yeah, for real. Yeah. I tell you, I could riff on this stuff forever, but before my last question, I ask every guest, if you want to be found, where can people find you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. There aren't a lot of Ben Judy's out there. Mm -hmm. Um, so certainly on all those different social media channels, Ben Judy, um, I do have the website, benjudy.com, although I really don't post much there. I don't have a lot of time to do that, uh, but it's pretty easy to find me online through LinkedIn or my website or any of those, those other channels. All right, cool. Yeah. So now the final question, which is what object or thing that you own that is non-digital has impacted your life the most or means the most to you and why? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really a sentimental guy in terms of things. Um, 
you know, so I don't, I don't, that's a tough one for me to answer. I don't have a, I don't collect things. Mm -hmm. I don't have, you know, um, and I'm pretty utilitarian. So this is going to be probably the lamest answer you'll ever get to this question. Um, (laughs) But in terms of the non-digital thing that I, that I kind of value the most, it might be my toothbrush. Because if you think about going through a day without brushing your teeth, (laughs) not the answer you're expecting, I'm sure. But uh, no, I don't really get attached to things so much. Um, And I'm I'm very digital. I'm the guy that will read 10 ebooks before I'll I'll buy an actual paper book. Um, And and that's all a, a fun kind of difference between me and my wife she's she wants to have a massive library in our home and and she has her nose in a book constantly an actual (laughs) honest to goodness book um and she's always telling me i'm crazy for wanting to to read things uh, on an e-reader or an ipad and i tell her (laughs) you know what you might think it's a whatever answer because sometimes people on here get really deep i've gotten emotional hearing some people sure I'm not crying listening to you today, <laughs> but that is a real boom. Because we would have stinky breath. We'd sure. have rotting teeth. We'd have disease. I'm with you. That is an important, important item. Yeah, well, I had to be careful with that answer, too, because in the past I have tried the digital toothbrushes, the, the mm. electric ones with the connect to your Bluetooth or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm just, no, currently I'm, I'm, I've got an old school... <laughs> disposable one so i guess that's a fair answer <laughs> <laughs> well thank you again for coming out and bringing your expertise and your fresh breath and um <laughs> hopefully we can do this again uh, it was a real pleasure tony thank you all right friends with that we will call it a week again i want to thank my guest and thank you for tuning in i hope you've enjoyed this episode and if you did don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening Also, if you want to look behind the scenes and have even more design goodies in your face and in your ears, you can follow Experience Design on Instagram at xdpodcast. Until next time, friends, stay curious. Experience Design with Tony Dosett is part of XD Media, LLC. All opinions are my own and do not reflect those of my current or former employers. Hosting and publication of the podcast is through Buzzsprout.